summer rec. Rec being short for recreation was the program when I was a kid. A needed break for parents whose little ones were on vacation from school, its most popular feature being a daily trip to the public landing at Branch Lake. The old bus would be full of kids in dire need of relief from the hot summer sun. If you've ever swum at the public landing, you're probably familiar with the ledges. They seem to be a long way from the beach all those years ago. I have seen them many times since, especially when the landing was also the boat launch. Apparently someone has moved them closer to shore. Anyway, it was an accomplishment. One had to pass a test to be allowed to swim out to the ledges. And it was from the ledges that we dove repeatedly to the bottom to retrieve white colored rocks or whatever objects we had that would sink so that we could dive after them. If you have ever had that experience of swimming to the bottom of a lake in search of something, you know how it might sting your eyes just a little bit when you open them, how the pressure changes around you and in your ears as you make your way further and further down, how the water is cooler the deeper you go. And you know how that object you toss just to retrieve is plain enough to see in that clear lake, and yet somehow the water is deeper than it appears, deeper than you thought. I've said it before, and I'm sure it's not an idea that's original to me. If I knew who to attribute it to, I would. But looking into the Gospel of John is like looking into the depths of a crystal clear lake. You can see the bottom, and you think it's not that deep until you try to get to that bottom, and you find out that there's a lot more than you thought between your first glance and the lake bed below. That has absolutely been the case in my study of this morning's text from when I first chose it until now. I initially thought of trying to fit a faithful exposition of 11 verses into this abbreviated time that is allotted. And that exercise has been rather like trying to stuff a pillow into a shoebox. It won't fit. And so this morning's sermon will be the first of two messages on John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, as we at least break the surface and begin to swim our way through the depths and to the bottom of what John, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, intends to reveal. Our story takes place in a small town, a village called Cana, in the region of Galilee. Scholars disagree about the actual location of this place. It has not stood the test of time. Some believe it was about eight miles north of Nazareth. Some believe it was a natural stopping point between Nazareth and Capernaum, where Jesus ministered a lot. Some believe that Mary may have lived there, perhaps with family members after Joseph died. There's a lot of speculation about Cana, and there's more we don't know than what we do know. It's safest to say that we're talking about a small village in a region of Galilee. 
A wedding is taking place, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there, and Jesus is there as well with some of his disciples. We do not know who's getting married. Perhaps relatives of Jesus, perhaps just friends. Mary seems to have more than a passing interest in the course of events, but still, we just don't know the wedding party. All we have is an unnamed man and an unnamed woman celebrating a wedding in an obscure, out-of-the-way location. Now, a wedding, of course, is a promising occasion, right? Always a reason for great joy. And it's also a frequent and enduring biblical image as it conveys the ideas of covenant and commitment. The ceremony itself has taken place, and John drops us straight into what you and I would call the reception. This is something that in the Jewish tradition could go on for days. It would not at all be like our American experience of a wedding, of a couple, say, making vows at 2 o'clock and then a reception to follow at 3, and then depending on the caterer or whether or not there's a band or how long the pictures took, the whole thing is wrapped up by 6 or 7. So the newlyweds can get off to the honeymoon. This wedding in John chapter 2 would have been celebrated over many days, and it would also have been about a year in the making. A lot of preparation went into planning to pull off this great event, and this was the time for the groom to prove that he could provide and care for his wife-to-be. So when the time to wed arrived, it was the party to beat all parties. Guests were invited, but not necessarily the RSV type. They would weave in and out throughout the day's long festivities, all the while expecting food and drink. It was the groom's responsibility to offer this high level of hospitality. So you can imagine the tension then when the wine runs out. Well, maybe you can't. Maybe you don't drink wine. Maybe you don't care for the stuff. And if you were at the celebration that day, you'd have been happy with your ginger ale. There's always a danger of us reading Scripture through the lens of our own values and our own preferences. So to understand the tension in this story, we really need to grasp the values of the culture in which it took place. Running out of wine is not a small problem. It's not an inconsequential matter. In that day and age, there would be no quick fix to this dilemma. It's not like they could just sing a couple more songs while they send somebody out to the liquor store to grab some more Cabernet. This development is not tantamount to a keg that kicked early, where you can just go out into the storeroom and grab another one. This is an indictment on the groom. This is his chance to show his ability to provide and care for his new bride by caring for his guests. If he fails here, it does not bode well at all for the marriage. If he fails here, his reputation is mud. In a small town where the guest list is everyone come on over, people will be talking for years to come 
about the sad wedding where the wine ran out. In fact, there's a rabbinical saying, without wine there is no joy. Wine is a symbol of joy in the Bible. A wedding without wine is a union without joy. Now we want a wedding to be memorable, right? But for good reasons. And this party is about to come to a screeching halt. A social crisis is looming. For some reason, unknown to us, not central to the story, Mary, the mother of Jesus, has more than a casual interest in the quandary. She is the one who seems to notice first they have no wine. She has picked up on a problem. Maybe the waiters are whispering in the ears of the maitre d'. Anyway, this is what she tells Jesus. They have no wine. She's making an observation here, but not just a casual or a straightforward observation like, hey, this chicken is fabulous, or I like what you've done with your hair. This appears to be an observation that carries an expectation. We might call it indirect communication. When someone says one thing, it really means another. In general, I share this advice emphatically in premarital counseling. It is easier and better to say what you mean and mean what you say than to expect the person you are communicating with to be able to figure out what it is that you are or are not conveying. You should know has been an unfounded assumption at the root of a lot of resentment in relationships. We may dearly want the ones we love most to understand us so well that they can read our minds, and sometimes people can read between the lines, but don't count on it. Perhaps here Mary knows she's not in a position to order her 30-year-old son around anymore, and yet she seems to believe that he could do something about this situation. And Jesus is tracking with her. This is not his first conversation with his mom, though the way he responds is kind of curious. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. You know, it's easier to explain what this response is not than to explain what it is. Because it sounds harsh, especially when we hold it up against the many other sayings of Jesus that we're familiar with in Scripture. It sounds harsh, but it is not disrespectful. Because to disrespect his mother would have been sinful, and Jesus never sinned. He perfectly upheld the command to honor his mother and father. Jesus would always care for his mother, even from the cross, you might recall, arranging for her to be looked after as he hung there and watched her, watching him, being crucified. And as the prophet Simeon had said, having her soul pierced. Jesus would always honor his mother. So addressing Mary as woman is not disrespectful, but at the same time, it's not affectionate either. The SV Bible explains it well in the study notes. It says that this is an expression of polite distance. What I believe Jesus is distancing himself from here is not the person of his mother. He's not distancing himself from his mom as a person, but from her will. That is, he can 
respect her and want to do as she wishes because he loves her, but his primary allegiance is not to her will, but to his heavenly father's. You might remember that later in his ministry, when Jesus had gained in popularity, there were great crowds coming around. His mother and his brothers came to him. Luke writes about this in the eighth chapter of his gospel. But they couldn't reach him because of the multitudes. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. So here Jesus is modeling what he would also teach, that one's allegiance to God is to be of supreme importance. And Matthew 10, 37 says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So back to this exchange with his mother. This is the beginning of Christ's earthly ministry Jesus is surely stepping into his messianic office, but just as surely he won't be pushed into it. And his work is first to do the will of his heavenly father, not necessarily the will of his earthly mother, unless those two happen to be the same. Now, to be fair, we don't know what Mary expected Jesus to do, whether in her heart of hearts she knew that he was capable of doing something miraculous, which is, when you think of it, quite possible, given the unusual circumstances of his birth, the testimony of angels, the words of the prophets, the fact that as a teenager he never talked back and he never broke curfew. And I don't really know that for a fact, but can you imagine what it was like to have Jesus as a son, sinless, Whether she expected something miraculous from Jesus or whether she simply turned to him because for 30 years he'd been solving problems and coming up with really good answers, we cannot say. But she did expect something. And she didn't tell him what to do. In this third verse of John 2, the old English Baptist preacher Alexander McLaren spies a pattern for us to follow. He says, let us tell Jesus our wants and leave him to deal with them as he knows how. That is not to say that we can't go to the Lord with our problems and ask for specific desirable outcomes. We just should be careful about telling him the problem and prescribing the solution at the same time. Lord, here's, here's what's going on in my life, and here's, Lord, is how you can fix it. McLaren is right. Let us tell Jesus our wants and leave him to deal with them as he knows how. That is what Mary does, turning to the servants, which also leads us to believe that she had some sort of authority here in this place or some sort of strong relationship because she commands the servants She simply says to them, looking at Jesus, do whatever he tells you. John notes, verse 6, if you're following along, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. These jars did not contain water to drink, but water for washing. Ceremonial cleansing. Guests at the feast could wash their hands, wash their feet. They could be ritually clean before they ate. Jesus commands the servants to fill these jars with water. Now, if you think this through, what he's commanding is not a small or an easy task. It doesn't 
wasn't just a matter of turning on a spigot on the side of the VFW hall. Doing what Jesus commanded meant going to a water source, presumably the well in the middle of the village, and lugging water back. Many times, back and forth, this would have to be repeated, until the jars were filled to the brim. I wonder why these servants would even take an order from Jesus, who has no apparent authority at the feast and who doesn't seem to want any. It makes me wonder what kind of clout Mary had. She did tell them, after all, do whatever he tells you. But still, why the purification jars? Isn't the issue at hand a lack of wine for drinking, not a lack of water for washing? And yet they obey. Perhaps later they would testify. Really, it was water. We lugged it from the well. We filled all the jars up with it. It was just water, perhaps. And Jesus issues another perplexing command to the servants, and he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. Put the water in, now pull a cupful out, and take it to the master of ceremonies. This doesn't make any sense either. But they do as they are told. They took it. And somewhere, between drawing the water out and putting it into a cup, and the contents of that cup passing the lips of the master of the feast, water was turned into wine. Now, I'm no vintner. I don't know how long it takes to make a batch of wine. Apparently, there's some value in aging wine because someone declared they would sell no wine before its time. And we hear comparisons about something getting better with age and fine wine. I don't know how long it takes to produce a good wine, but I know it doesn't happen instantaneously, and it definitely doesn't happen when water is the only ingredient. Without leaving his seat without touching anything, without fanfare, without fuss, in an obscure village, by the hands of unnamed servants, at a wedding for unnamed people, Jesus quietly demonstrates that he is Lord over creation. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. He called the bridegroom because we see here again who's really in charge of this feast and how the experience of this party reflects on the character of the host. And he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Well, of course, everyone serves the good wine first. You only get one chance to make a first impression, right? And, w and when the goal is to demonstrate your ability to care for a wife by caring for your guests, by caring for your clan, by caring for your community, then yes, you put your best foot forward and you serve up the good stuff first. But that's not what happened. 
the groom had put out what he had. And it wasn't enough to keep the party going. The idea that he had saved the best for last is just the interpretation, and it's a misinterpretation at that, of the master of the feast. But the servants knew the truth, and so did the disciples. Jesus had turned water into wine. And that brings us to the end of the story. It's a fascinating story. But what does it mean? What does it signify? Why does John include it here in his letter, in his gospel? The miracle of turning water into wine is clearly important because in this whole gospel, 21 chapters, John cites only eight miracles of Jesus. Jesus did a lot more miracles than that, more than John chose to record. And he ends his gospel with this statement. Now, there are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Many other things that Jesus did. So John's sharing only a relative few from all the works of Jesus that he could choose from says to us that each miracle he includes is especially significant for what he wants to accomplish. Each Miracle, including the one we've just walked through, is in John's gospel on purpose for a purpose. And we do not have to wonder what that purpose is because he kindly tells us in John 20, verses 30 to 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John's gospel is a gospel of belief. It's a good exercise when you're reading through the gospel of John to keep a pencil handy and just circle how many times you come across that word believe or its derivatives. John wants whoever reads or hears these words of his to come to terms with both the identity and the intention of Jesus. And he writes to answer the questions, perhaps two of the most important questions a person can come to terms with in this life, certainly some of the far more, more far-reaching questions, who is Jesus and what does he want? Who is Jesus and what does he want? So how has John done? Does this story pique your interest? Does this account challenge the thoughts, the perceptions you've had about Jesus up until now? Does this record reinforce the right decision you've already made to acknowledge him as Savior and Lord and from him to receive eternal life? Who is Jesus and what does he want? Father, we praise you and thank you for 
your challenging word for the way you reveal yourself to us through your son, Jesus, for the writing of John, for this miracle that tells us of your power, of your compassion. Father, we pray for faith to believe. We pray for those who do not yet believe. We pray, Lord, that the barriers holding people back from knowing you would be removed. We pray, God, that you would cause the scales on eyes that are blinded to fall away. We pray, Lord, that you would be revealed in glory to those who do not yet know you. And we thank you, Lord, for the faith that we have and the sight that we have received to understand who you are and what you want. We thank you, Lord, that you have shown that to us, not because of anything we have done or any greatness we possess, but because you are great. Amen.